Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Find your way up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. So let me encourage you to utilize the table of contents to navigate this big book. There's a lot in it. And find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. And and when you get there, uh, put your finger on verse 30 and 31. That's where we're going to be camping out here in a few moments. But let me voice a prayer for us before we dive into uh, this story of faith. Uh, Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we um, approach your scriptures tonight? I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us up and enable us to uh, apprehend the beauty of your Son that is found therein. I pray that you would create faith within us, that you would strengthen faith within us, that you would multiply faith through us tonight. God, I pray that the eyes of our faith would be drawn towards the beauty of Christ and that we would consider the redeeming grace that you have made available and you've provided to us in and through him. And so, God, I ask as we consider this story of Rahab tonight that you would teach us, instruct us, and form us all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we've been journeying through a series titled Stories of Faith, looking at the stories of, of different folks listed out in Hebrews chapter 11. And tonight we're coming to perhaps my favorite story that is found in this one chapter. And this is the story that concerns a woman named Rahab. Now, if, you've ever, if you know anything about Rahab, Rahab lived in the ancient city of Jericho. And in this city, she lived most probably in a modest house, but that modest house was part of an immodest neighborhood. As her neighborhood in uh, the city of Jericho, which wasn't uncommon for ancient cities to have these little pockets, these little sections within their city known as the Red Rope District. And what that means is that these Red Rope Districts were kind of the ancient ancestors to our contemporary city's Red Light Districts. These pockets and places within cities where women of the night would signal their clientele by draping a red rope in their window and then their clients would come to their home and there they would exchange or she would exchange intimate pleasures for personal profits. This was the type of woman Rahab was. Which is interesting when you consider her name as it appears so often in the scriptures. Usually when her name pops up on the pages of the Bible, that, that descriptor is usually labeled alongside it. She's described on multiple, in multiple passages as Rahab the prostitute. That her name bore that branding. When we are first introduced, introduced to Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, it's in a moment where the people of Israel are approaching the city of Jericho, and the city of Jericho is standing in between them and the promised land, the place where God is taking them to give to them. And, but they have to go through the city of Jericho, and the guy who's leading the people of Israel at that time is named Joshua, and, and he's a military strategist. He knows how to lead his people through these situations. And so rather than running up to the city of Jericho and and knocking on the door and just entering and passing through the city, they know that they would be resisted there. So he decides to send two spies on ahead of, him, ahead of them. And these two spies would go into the city of Jericho and scope things out to get uh, kind of the lay of the land and discover what the city was like and maybe some weak points and things of that nature. And so these two spies entered the city of Jericho. And when they did, they found this red rope dangling 
in Rahab's window and they approached her home believing they could kind of hide along with all the other clients and all the other sojourners and wanderers that would, that would typically move into that part of the city. And so they approach Rahab's home and in Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 we read that they went and came into the house of a prostitute, there's that branding, a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And then again, in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, we are told that these same, same two spies once again entered, entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Even when you find her name listed in the, book, in the New Testament, like James chapter 2, verse 25, she's described there once again as Rahab, the definite article, the prostitute. And then, of course, in tonight's passage, in verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11, we find her name branded with that descriptor once again. But what is so surprising about this prostitute named Rahab is that her name is found listed here in Hebrews chapter 11. She's listed here among the likes of those such as Moses and Abraham, these great heroes of the faith, these pillars in the history of the people of Israel. And yet Rahab the prostitute is mentioned and listed among them. And it is striking as you're reading through the book of uh, reading through this chapter because there's really nothing Rahab shares in common with Moses or Abraham or any other names that have been mentioned up to this point. Rahab is a female. That's quite different. There's been one lady mentioned before this. Her name is Sarah, but she's listed in reference to Abraham. But the story really concerns Abraham's faith. And, but here we have a story of faith that is really the first one that is squaring up on a female. So that sets her apart from those who've come before not only is she a female, she is a prostitute. That's quite different. But then you would add one more layer to that. Not only was she a prostitute, she was a Gentile. She was not a part of the Israelite people. She was not Jewish. So she was the ultimate outsider. She just kind of sticks out, does not feeling like she belongs with this crowd. She shares nothing in common with anyone else. And so you're wondering, how did a woman like that find herself in a passage like this? What door did she walk in through and and as you consider the passage, you discover that the door that she walked in through is this door of faith that we've been talking about. That what, what brings her into this lineage and what puts her in this listing is that she was a woman who lived by faith in the promise and the power of God's redeeming grace. That's where she was. That's how she arrives here. And that's really what she shares in common with all of those listed in this chapter. They lived by faith in the promise and the power of God's redeeming grace. Now, as a woman of the night, Rahab would often entertain travelers and sojourners who were passing through the city. And you can imagine as these uh, travelers and these sojourners would come into her home and perhaps as they're laying in bed at night and they begin to have some conversations and these sojourners and these travelers begin to talk about some of the stories that they've heard about happenings in the world outside the walls of the city of Jericho. You can imagine some of these, these clients engaging her in conversation in those moments and telling her perhaps about a tribe of people called the Israelites. And maybe as they were lying in bed together, she would hear the story of the God of Israel redeeming them from oppression and slavery in Egypt. That, that this God performed mighty works of wonder to deliver his people from slavery. Perhaps in those moments, she would hear about the God who parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites might walk across on dry land. The God who would lead his people as a pillar of cloud by day and a 
and a pillar of fire by night, or a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Maybe she heard stories about how this God would bring bread to his people from heaven as they wandered through the wilderness. This God who would bring water from rocks. This God who would go before his people, conquering their enemies. This this God who, once they arrived at Mount Sinai, shook the foundations of that mountain in bringing his revelation to his people. She perhaps heard stories in those still moments in the middle of the night lying with her clients. Stories about this sovereign God, this redeeming God who worked wonders and keeps promises. This is perhaps the God that she had heard about. After all, when you step into the story found in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, she begins to say something to the two spies that lead us to believe that that's exactly what happened. That she had caught wind of the God of Israel. She had heard of Israel's God. Check it out, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. She tells the two spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. She makes it clear to the two spies that she had heard the word of God. She had heard of God and all the wonders and the works that he had been performing for the people of Israel. And and perhaps having heard of God, she began to believe in God, expressing faith in God, saying, I'd rather identify with your God and live than stand against him and perish. Her experience is not unlike what Paul would describe happens in the life of every follower of Jesus in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, where he tells us where faith comes from, where he tells us where belief, what generates belief in our hearts. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ, right? Hearing about the wonders of our God, hearing about the promises of our God, our God hearing about the power of our God, most namely manifested in the person of Jesus. This is where faith comes from. And so having heard of God, that hearing generated faith within Rahab so that she becomes a person who believes and is trusting in the promise of God's redeeming grace and power. But what's interesting about that passage in Joshua chapter 2 is that the reputation of the God of Israel seems to have reached many people in the city of of Jericho. A lot of people had heard about the reputation of, of Israel's God, but not everyone was believing Not everyone was responding as Rahab is responding in this moment. And that is surprising because Rahab might be considered the least likely one to respond. But the more I serve as a pastor, the more I uh, engage in gospel ministry, the more more I find myself surprised by those who believe and those who don't. I I sometimes feel like I, I know who's believing in the gospel and have an idea of the kind of profile of a person that's trusting in Jesus, only to have my assumptions blown out of the water time and time again. 
and I find myself surprised by who is actually believing the gospel, who's responding to the truth of the gospel in ways that, is, that are life-changing. This same dynamic is touched on by Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, people that everyone assumed would have received the Messiah and heard the word of the kingdom of God that Jesus was teaching. But listen to what Jesus says and how, surprised, how surprising it is when it comes to who actually believes, it seems. Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Tax collectors and prostitutes were the least likely. They were the bottom ring of the social ladder. They were some of the most despised and looked down upon people in the community. And yet Jesus is saying they are entering the kingdom of God before the Pharisees, before the religious leaders. And then he goes on to say this, for John, that is John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, meaning he came to declare the word of God to you, to prepare the way for my arrival. Listen, but you did not believe him. Everyone expected you guys to receive me, but you're not believing him. And then he goes on, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. Surprised by who was actually believing and responding to the word of God, so to speak. It is often surprising to see who believes and who doesn't. And the longer you journey with Jesus and engage in gospel ministry, the more surprised you're going to find yourself being. I remember reading about Alice Cooper, who uh, was a rock musician, and when he was kind of at, on top of the world, and his most, uh, when he was, had reached kind of the pinnacle of his success and his artistry, he, he found at the same time, although he was on top of the world, he found himself uh, diving into the bottom of whiskey bottles day every day. And he said that I've, I've drink a whiskey bottle every day, and it almost destroyed my life. But for Alice Cooper, he had a wife who loved him, and his wife didn't want to see him self-destruct, and destroy his life, and so she intervened and said, hey, why don't, why don't you start coming, to me, coming with me to church? And so she started dragging him to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and he would hear the word of God. He would hear people declaring about the works and the wonders and the grace and the goodness of our God, and, and he would go on to say, you know, every Sunday it seemed as though God was speaking to me. And over the course of time, God's word began to generate faith in him. Things began to change. And when he found himself believing in God and his life changing, he eventually went and started talking to other people about what went down in his heart. And listen to what he says about some of those encounters. He says, I've talked to some big stars about this, some really horrific characters. And you'd be surprised, he says, the ones that you would think are the farthest gone are the ones that are the most apt to listen. The ones that you would think are the most far gone are the ones that are the most apt to listen. Don't ever write anyone off. Don't ever think someone is too far beyond the redemptive reach of God. Don't dismiss people. Don't overlook people. Don't bypass people. Understand that those you believe are the farthest ones from God's redeeming grace are in many cases the very ones who are most apt to listen and to hear and have faith generated in their lives. This is Rahab's example. As she heard about the wonders of God, she came to believe in the God of Israel. And because she believed, she began to make choices that corresponded with that belief. In fact, some of the decisions and the choices she made were risky. For example, when these two spies showed up at her door, 
She did not turn them away or dismiss them. Instead, she welcomed them into her home. And she received the spies. This is what she's commended for at the end of verse 31. She had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's interesting when you consider how the word not only generates faith, but when the word generates faith, it generates the kind of faith that will always find itself cooperating with the purposes of God in the world. So Rahab's faith showed out in works. It showed out in welcoming these two spies because word-generated faith will always find itself cooperating with the purposes of God. And this brings us to a little bit of dilemma as it relates to Rahab's story because in the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 25, her justification is described in terms that might make some of us who love grace and love the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone, it can make us uncomfortable. Check it out, James chapter 2, verse 24. James is writing and he's addressing people who believe they have faith in Jesus, but their faith isn't generating any works. They're not cooperating with the purposes of God in the world. And he's saying, look, the faith that you think you have is a dead faith. And then he pulls up Rahab as an example of the kind of faith the word generates. But listen to some of the language he uses. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on, and in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Was she justified by works, he's saying? Is that a, how does that jive with what Paul would write in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 when he says we have, we are therefore, therefore we have been justified by faith and as a result of our faith we have peace with God and so which one is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Well, I believe when you take the holy sequence of how God's word generates faith, I think we need to square up on the kind of faith that God's word generates. And the kind of faith that God's word generates isn't a dead faith. It isn't an inactive faith. The kind of faith that God's word generates is an active, working faith, a faith that aspires towards obedience and cooperation with the things of God. This is why Martin Luther, who taught on justification by faith alone better and more clearly than any other person perhaps in church hit church history. Even Martin Luther would say, you know, yes, we are justified by faith alone, but understand that the faith that justifies is never alone. It will always show itself up and out with with choices and cooperation with the activity of God in our lives. This is the type of faith God's word generates. It is a cooperative faith. And yes, when you find this faith beginning to blossom in your life and you begin to start cooperating with the ways of God and the will of God and you want to be about the purposes of God, yes, when you begin to exercise faith, you're, at times it's going to be awkward and at times it's going to look uh, kind of deformed and you're going to see that faith, when it comes into a person's life and it is generated by the word of God, that faith doesn't come fully formed and firing on all cylinders. This is why when you come back to the story of Rahab, an interesting thing goes down. An interesting thing happens when she welcomes the spies into her home because there were some others who spotted the spies going into her household. And they, were, they gave word to the king of Jericho, and the king of Jericho uh, sent some officers to investigate because, uh, to see who these guys were and to perhaps take them into custody. But when they showed up knocking on Rahab's door, and she opens up, and they, they ask her, hey, where'd these two guys go? 
If you're familiar with the story of Rahab, you know that Rahab lied in her response. She didn't tell the truth. It's never right to, tell the, to lie. It's never right to uh, deceive or say something that is untrue. And, and so when you consider Rahab's story, yes, there's this ethical dilemma that we kind of get hung up on. We're wondering how can she lie and still be used by God? Is it right to lie? And we start wrestling with these types of questions. But let me just encourage you to consider this. Do you believe God needed Rahab's lie in order to spare the lives of the spies? I don't think God needed Rahab's lie to do that. And the reason why I think that is because God had already promised Abraham the land. And he said, every, he said look, this land is going to be yours. It's going to happen. And, and then God also told Joshua after he succeeded Moses, he says, as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. And every place you put your foot down is going to be yours already. And so he's affirmed Joshua. He's affirmed the people of Israel. He's made these promises. He's going to keep these promises. And, no, uh, and had Rahab told the truth, I don't think doing so would have thwarted the plan. And all that to say is that God ultimately doesn't need our help and he ultimately doesn't need our lives. But the cool thing about a God of redeeming grace is that a God of redeeming grace transcends our lives. He transcends our lives and fulfills his purposes of redeeming grace. Our God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our lies, but he's a God of grace who even when we sin and even when we uh, do things that are out of step with the ethics of his kingdom, even that can't thwart the purposes of his grace and his goodness towards us in Jesus. You see, Rahab had faith and she's living by faith, but like ours so often, her faith is a flawed faith. Is not fully formed so that she's firing on all moral cylinders. And what is interesting is that her lie in that moment is not unlike a lie that Abraham told. Abraham and his story in the book of Genesis, there's a moment where he goes to Egypt, he and Sarah, and they go there in search of food because a famine had struck, had struck the land. And when, as they're entering Egypt, he looks over and he remembers, man, my wife is pretty attractive. And it's possible that whenever I go into this land, other men are going to find her attractive. Maybe even the Pharaoh. And sure enough, that went down. And when they asked Abraham who this woman was that was with her, instead of telling them that this was his wife, he said this is his sister because he thought that if he said she was his wife, they would kill him to take her. But instead, he lied and said, look, that's, that's not my wife. That's my, that's my sister. You see, faith doesn't show up in any of our lives fully formed. It doesn't show up fully formed. This is why I remember reading a story about a missionary who, after meeting Jesus, he met Jesus in the midst of a pretty hard-drinking environment, uh, particularly his business and his occupation was surrounded by whiskey and hard alcohol, and, and he liked to take a lot of it. And after meeting Jesus, he, he, noticed, he knew his life was changing, and he wanted to be about the purposes of God in his life. And, and there was a moment where he wanted to share the gospel with a friend of his. But he was so nervous about doing so that in order to summon enough courage, he, he killed six martinis, just put them down. Liquid courage to go and talk about Jesus. It's, it's, he has faith, a sincere faith, but his faith isn't fully formed. It needs to be developed. It has to be nurtured. It has to grow. It has to strengthen. There's a lot of things that he doesn't know. There's a lot of aspects on uh, elements in his conscience that need to be formed by the word and formed by a relationship with this new God that he's trusting in. Another example I would give you would be John Newton. 
John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, you know before he met Jesus, he was involved in the slave trade. And he would sell slaves. He met Jesus, was rescued by the grace of God in the gospel. His life began to change, but he continued on in the slave trade for an entire year. An entire year before his conscience woke up to how it was that occupation contradicted his newfound faith in Jesus. So he continued working for a year before he discovered that and he stepped out of that and repented of it. You see, when faith comes into our lives, it doesn't come fully formed. It has to be nurtured. It has to be watered. It has to be nourished. It has to be cultivated and developed. This is why when you become a Christian, studying the scriptures and, and coming and, and paying attention to the teaching of the scriptures is so important for your discipleship. Because your faith has to be formed by the scriptures. There are so many things that you don't know. There are so many assumptions that you make about life and what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. There's so many assumptions that need to be redirected and reformed and reshaped and recalibrated by the scriptures. This is why when you are a disciple, you become a student of the word so that the word can form this faith that has been generated in you as a result of hearing the gospel. So you continue coming and letting the word Water your soul and water your faith so that it might sprout and flourish. But perhaps, but perhaps still, you may be too hung up on the fact that Rahab lied and you haven't quite moved past that dynamic. And maybe you're just too hung up on Rahab's lie. And if that's the case, then you're going to have a hard time re- enjoying the God of redeeming grace. Because the God of redeeming grace is going to constantly do things that's going to leave you frustrated. It's going to constantly do things in and through people's lives. It's going to leave you scratching your head wondering, how can that be? How is that possible? That's not right. That's not good. The God of grace is going to constantly leave you flabbergasted as it relates to his activities in the world. So when it comes to rehab, yes, she was a woman of the night. She was a prostitute. Yes, she was a lying prostitute, it seems. But then you consider her story as it unfolds throughout the rest of the scriptures. There are some other things that would go down in her life that are mind-blowing. You see, this lying prostitute would go on and get married one day. And she would marry a man by the name of Salmon. And after marrying him, they would give birth to a son named Obed. And Obed would father a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son who went by the name of David. And David would go on to be the greatest king in the history of the Old Testament. And years later, another would come from his line. In his name, he would be referred to as the son of David. His name would be called Jesus, Jesus the Christ. So that when you get into Matthew chapter 1, you read the lineage of Jesus' family, and it traces down from Abraham to Jesus, who you find listed in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, Rahab. It's the wonder of redeeming grace that God would graft a sinner such as her into his sacred family. But isn't that the story of all of us? Sinners being grafted into his sacred family. Sinners who've been brought into relationship with the God of the universe that is characterized by sonship and daughtership, by family, familial love. This is the story of Christianity. God grafting sinners into his sacred family. This is the story of Rahab and how it informs our stories in this world. But even still, some of you perhaps 
are tempted to write yourselves off. And you think to yourself, man, man, God can't love me. God can't forgive me. God can't use me. I'm too messed up and mixed up. And you're tempted to write yourself off thinking that your sin has so fortified you in and separating you from the promises of God's redeeming grace that there's nothing you can, you can do about it. And if you're tempted to write yourself off and believe you're cut off from the promises of God and the people of God and all that he has for us in Jesus, let me encourage you to consider more of Rahab's story. You see, as the people of Israel were approaching the city of Jericho, they, they found that that city was fortified with walls. And these walls were quite intimidating, and they had to figure out what they were supposed to do, go over them, go around them, go in them. How were they going to handle this big city? The spies went in to scope things out. They came out and gave the report. Now Israel's on the march. And so you have the people of Israel on one side of the walls of Jericho. On the other side is the promised land. So essentially you have the people of God and you have the promises of God. And standing in between them are these impenetrable walls that they are not going to be able to overcome on their own. And in that moment as they're approaching the city, God came up with a plan that surprised everyone. He told the people of Israel, look, when you get to the walls, I don't want you to lead with soldiers. I don't want the soldiers to go before you carrying swords and shields. That's not how we're going to do this. And so instead of, instead of enlisting soldiers and sent, sending them in, he tells the band to go out in front. Can you imagine what a soldier was thinking when, when, J, when Joshua said, all right, guys, put your swords away. Hey, trumpet players, come out in front. Marching band's going to lead us into the city of Jericho. And so the band comes out, and they start leading them there. And God says, now I want you to just walk around the walls. That's all I want you to do is just walk around the walls of Jericho. You're going to do that for about seven days. Then on the seventh day, after you circle the walls, you're going to bust out in song. The trumpet players are going to play. Everybody's going to start shouting and singing. And when that worship arises from my people, the walls of Jericho are going to come tumbling down. And that's exactly what happened as the people of Israel lived by that kind of faith, obeying this God of redeeming grace. And the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's what happened. And what we begin to be cued into is that, we, is that the God of Israel, the God of redeeming grace, is a God who guarantees, look, I'm going to remove anything that stands between my people and my promises. I will remove anything that stands between my people and my promises. That includes your sin. That includes all the reasons you think you're disqualified from being rescued by God, being enlisted by God, being used by God. God intends to remove everything that stands between his people and his promises. There is no sin too strong that God's redeeming grace can't penetrate can't break through it just doesn't exist and so years later when Rahab's great 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 grandson Jesus when he would live his life only to go to the cross he understand that when he went to the cross he went to the cross to do just that he went to the cross tear down the very thing that stands between the people of God and the promises of God. He went to the cross to remove our sin, to tear down the walls of sin in our lives so that we might enjoy fellowship with our God, relationship with our God, freedom with our God, that we might be reconciled with our God. That's precisely what Jesus did when he went to the cross. 
Now you consider that and you come back to the story of Rahab and understand that after the walls of Jericho fell, the Israelites entered the city and they began to kind of comb things and sweep through the city. But as these soldiers approached Rahab's house, they noticed in her window a red rope dangling from it. You see, after uh, when the spies got ready to leave Rahab's home the first time, Rahab asked them to deliver her, that she wanted to be a part of the people of God and worshiping God. And, and they said, okay, well, when we come through, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one of those red ropes and I want you to dangle it in your window. And when our soldiers see that red rope, they're going to pass by your home and you're going to live and everyone in your household will be spared. And so you've got this moment where this red rope is dangling in the window of her house. Soldiers are approaching and they bypass. They pass by, they pass over. They do the very thing that the angel of death did in Egypt so long before this. When the angel of death would come to the houses of the Israelites and the Egyptians, but every time he saw the red blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost, what did he do? He passed by, he passed over. And everyone in the household was spared. Everyone in the household was saved. This is essentially what goes down in Rahab's life. But think about it. This red rope once served as a signal to everyone of her sin. That same signal was what people looked for when they wanted to come in and gratify their flesh and gratify their desires. That red rope represented her sin for so long. And now, as a result of redeeming grace, that red rope has been refurbished. That red rope no longer represents an instrument of sin. It has now become an instrument or a sign of redemption. Utterly refurbished, utterly flipped. Its message has been redeemed. Can you think of any other place where that same dynamic occurs? I can think of a big one. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. You know that everybody who looked at the cross in the first century, what did they see? They saw an instrument of execution designed to punish sinners. Designed to punish those who committed egregious crimes, who were considered the worst of the worst, on the bottom rung of the social ladder. The cross was an instrument of execution designed to punish sin. But as those of us who are looking at the cross of Christ, and we are considering Jesus, when we look at the cross, what do we see? We see the very instrument of our salvation. The cross of Christ being refurbished, so to speak. This instrument of execution has become an instrument of redemption for everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. Everyone who would apply the blood of the Lamb to their lives. This cross is our hope. This cross is the most remarkable image echoing forth the redeeming grace of our God. This God who redeems us from our sin. This God who flips the script on our sin. This God who transcends and transforms us in the midst of our sin. This is precisely what the gospel declares. And so this red rope once served as a sign of, of her sin, but it's now been refurbished as a sign of God's redeeming grace to her. It's not unlike the words shared by Lucy Mary and Tolliver Roberts. We'll call her Lucy. Lucy was the mother of Robin Roberts. Robin Roberts, some of you may know, was one of the anchor women on Good Morning America. 
And Lucy died on August 28, 2012. But before she died, she lived long enough to see her daughter, Robin, undergo a bone marrow transplant. And God used that procedure to save Robin from her cancer. And, and one thing she said to her daughter before she left this earth, this is what she said. She said, Robin, cancer, it seems, has made a mess of your life. But make your mess your message. Make your mess your message. That's precisely what the God of redeeming grace does, doesn't he? All the reasons you think disqualify you from God's redemption may be the very reasons why God will rescue you. They may be the very reasons why God will hold you up as a trophy of his redeeming grace. As he turns your messes into his message of grace, his message of goodness, his, he begins to redeem your story. God has a long track record of doing that type of thing. I'll give you a few examples. The motley, have you ever noticed the motley crew of people that God redeemed and then used for his purposes in this world? We're talking about Rahab was a prostitute. Noah was a drunkard. Abraham was considered too old to be about what God was calling him to be about at that time. Isaac was a bit of a daydreamer, kind of lived with his head in the clouds, and he was so abstract that he was utterly useless on some occasions. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. A woman named Leah was considered unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses couldn't talk very well. Gideon was afraid and insecure. Samson was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were considered too young to be about what God was calling them to be about. David had an affair and committed murder. Elijah was suicidal. Joah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness and ate bugs. Just a strange guy. Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples fell asleep when they had an opportunity to be praying with Jesus. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman divorced and remarried time and time and time again. Zacchaeus was too short to see Jesus. Paul was too religious. And his religious zeal would lead him to persecute the church. And in his persecution, he murdered many Christians. Timothy had an ulcer, had a health problem. Lazarus was dead. And yet Jesus stepped before his tomb, and as he was fortified by this rock, sealed into this tomb as a dead man, Jesus, God's redeeming grace flowing through him, had the stone removed, and he spoke a word saying, Lazarus, come forth, and he brought this dead man back to life. There's nothing that can keep God's people separated from God's promises. Jesus will remove anything. That's your sin, that's your weaknesses, that's your sufferings, that's your death. Jesus will remove everything that stands between you and the realization of God's promises towards you in the gospel. This is the God of redeeming grace. This is the God that we believe. This is the God that we trust in. This is the God that we live by faith in. And this is the God that we have the privilege of worshiping together. 
And so I want to encourage you to do that just now. We're going to worship God together in, in two ways. We're going to come to the table and we're going to partake in this meal. We're going to be reminded of what God did to remove our sin by being served the bread. And as you're receiving the bread, you're going to be told this, bo- this bread represents the body of Christ that was given for you. Then you're going to dip that bread into the cup and be declared this cup represents the blood of Christ which was shed for your forgiveness so that your sin might be removed and you can have the promises of God realized in your life. That's what we're celebrating when we come to the table tonight. And as we come to the table, we're also going to join Bryant and the team in worshiping God in response to his grace because when you know the God of redeeming grace, all you want to do is worship. All you want to do is revel in the reality that he is far better to us than we are to him and that he is far stronger for us than we are strong for ourselves. Our God loves us. Our God will redeem us. Our God is for us and we want to celebrate that over these next few moments. I'm going to pray and then we're going to move into a time of responding in that way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your redeeming grace. We thank you that your grace is not only that your grace is unstoppable. Thank you, God, for being willing to generate faith within us and to generate the type of faith that will show itself in cooperation with your purposes and with your activities in this world. And I pray, God, that if anyone is struggling with with stepping into that and sinking into that and reveling in that reality, I pray that you would help, that you would overcome, that you would do things for us that, that we need you to do, that we can't do for ourselves. So, God, would you draw near and would you ignite our hearts with a passion and with, a, with affection in response to you and the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. God, we love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.